Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're interviewing Jason Horonsky, CEO of Jasco Games. Jasco Games is renowned for the ownership and development of tabletop games based on popular movie and video game properties. This year, they will release a board game based on the Mortal Kombat video game franchise, which to me sounds awesome. Jason, welcome to the bench. How are you doing? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is awesome to have you. Man, these are some pretty big properties you're involved with. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a journey. <laughs> That's got to be least. an immense source of pride, I guess I would say too, eh? to be able to say, hey, I'm the guy, right, that brought these uh, brought these to the tabletop. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's not as easy as it looks, I guess, is the easiest thing to say about the properties. <laughs> but uh, a lot of people ask us why we choose what we choose. And it's very much nostalgia, like I'm a big kid. So most of the stuff that we deal with had something to do with my childhood and just properties I really like. And I've been doing my best to get them and involve them in tabletop. So I read somewhere that you actually started when you're like 13. Uh, yeah. How and why and wh- what happened there? So it's a, I mean, it's kind of a long story, but uh, yeah, back in, I guess it was 1998. Um, I had just moved from West Texas to the Dallas Metroplex. I was really into Warhammer Fantasy, Warhammer 40K, anime, Yu-Gi-Oh! Magic, all that stuff, right, back in the yeah. day. And uh, when I moved to this new junior high, none of my friends played any of these games, and I had to introduce them to Warhammer and, and tabletop in general and all this stuff. And so the closest store to my house was like a 45-minute drive, something like that, um, yeah. all the way across town at a, a place called Big World Comics. And... Uh, I, I convinced all my new friends to play these games and get into Warhammer and get into card games and everything. And we would pile into my mom's car, drive all the way across town every weekend with our lunch money, buy as many miniatures and things as we could, and drive all the way back. Well, yeah. my mom was getting annoyed at that at the time. <laughs> and so I was like, well, why don't we just, what, what happens if we just open up our own business and we sell it out of the house? Uh, that was like le- legitimately the very beginning. Uh, we I converted our guest room into like a mini games workshop, little uh, featured store. Yep. Uh, we got a special deal as a, a stockist with Games Workshop. My mom gave me, she thought it'd just be a, a fad. And she's like, here, I'll give you like the startup cost. You can learn how to do taxes and all that stuff. It'll just be a little fun little thing. I think, uh, I think we started with like $1,500 of inventory. Oh, wow. And that was lent from my mom. And entrusted to me to learn something, I guess. I was like, yeah. <laughs> just she's like, for her, she's saving gas money, probably. But uh, so I stocked up, got everything that I knew my friends wanted to order, stocked some of the required things from Games Workshop, and it just kind of kept growing and growing. So, from this little guest room that's smaller than this little shelf room, is what I call it here in my house, mm-hmm. smaller than this, into uh, my mom's upstairs uh, game room like second living room thing so we expanded and we started selling more warhammer more 40k we ended up being listed in the white dwarf magazine for having a full stock of paint and warhammer and fantasy 40k uh lord of the rings all the stuff as it was coming out yeah and then uh we started adding Yu-Gi-Oh, anime and all these things to the store and all my friends in junior high and high school kept just coming to my house and my house was always <laughs> full of kids um got to the point where since we were in white dwarf 
random strangers started showing up to my house. I was like, is this a, is this a game store? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> and so about that time we decided, okay, well, we've grown. Yeah. We have the finances here. I've got plenty of inventory. I've got tons of like gaming tables and stuff that we've built over the years. Let's look into getting a real game store. So um, my sophomore year of high school, opened up a 3000 square foot store in Flower Mound, Texas, uh, close to DFW airport. Um, and I ran that through high school. We, we stocked uh, Games Workshop products. Privateer Press just came out with everything at that time. So we stocked War Machine and Hordes, uh, Flames of War, Magic Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, Magi Nation at the time was a game, uh, yeah. the, the, the Games Workshop card game, so the 40K card game and Warcry. And just kind of kept stocking more and more stuff. We ended up getting a full land center in the game store at that time. And just, I ran that through high school. I was uh, opened up right after school and stayed open till midnight every day. It was open all weekend. And then I'd do my homework at like six in the morning and sit in front of my class for like three hours doing my homework. And that was, that was school for me. Yeah. And um, did that through college. I actually went to Texas Tech, moved my store to West Texas. Uh, opened up there, expanded it again, got even bigger, and just kind of did it as a hobby while I was in college. And uh, in 2009, Fantasy Flight Games, I'm trying to compress this as much That's as That's okay. 2009, Fantasy Flight Games decided to end all of their CCG lines. Yeah. So they got, they, they canceled uh, Game of Thrones, Call of Cthulhu, uh, Mad, uh, what was it called? Uh, Kingdom Hearts and UFS, right? They canceled all their CCGs at once, right before a big Christmas sale. So I started talking to Steve Horvath over at Fantasy Flight, now he's with Asmodee, uh, about acquiring the rights to UFS, the card game. So this is like the story of the first game, Jasco Games Rescued. Um, so the game was gonna be canceled. It was around from 2006 to 2009, using Street Fighter and Soul Calibur and, and a bunch of fighting game titles. Started with Penny Arcade yeah. and negotiated that, took out a couple student loans, paid for the property, bought it off of Fantasy Flight Games. And when I graduated from college in January, 2010, we started becoming a publisher. And we started with the CCG UFS, which has now been converted to universes. Okay, yeah. And we're gonna be doing a big launch with My Hero Academia this year for that game. But that was the first game we saved. And then since then we've, uh, we had no licenses or anything at the time. I developed our own IP, Red Horizon, to launch the card game with. Uh, built that up for three years and slowly got our first licensing agreement with uh, SNK Playmore at the time. Now they're just SNK yeah. for King of Fighters 13. And since then, we've just been growing into bigger and bigger licenses and games and expanded from card games to board games to miniatures games to puzzles, toys, kind of do everything now. So um, let me just, I, I got to jump in here. So <laughs> in high school, you opened up your own store. Yep. In junior high, right? And then you're you're running your own store throughout high school, kind of moon, you know, in, in moonlighting with your your homework and so forth. This is this is not a common story. This is this is <laughs> like from an entrepreneurial stand. I mean, this is the American dream, clearly. But I mean, wow, like that is incredible, right? To to do that at such an early age, kind of cut your teeth on kind of the business aspect of it. Amazing. Now, when you move that store. Was there any consideration to maybe even just selling the existing store so that, because you would have had people coming to visit the location by the airport, right? Mm -hmm. Before you even moved. Yeah, so we actually did. In the Dallas okay. store, the store in Flower Mound, we sold to a company called Game Exchange and they only stayed open for about a year. <laughs> um, it turns out, like literally, I think it was just at a year, they closed like a couple of days after the year anniversary. 
yeah. um, which is really sad, but uh, we brought in a lot of clientele through me. Uh, so I guess a lot of the success was the fact that I was in high school, yeah. had like 3000 students and they all knew me in the store. So without me, I guess a lot of the, the, the customers just didn't care anymore. You probably lose that coolness factor too, right? Going from some kid running the store, you know, as his store to someone else just taking it over and, you know. Yeah, and they had like three or four locations. Yeah, Game Exchange was around the Dallas area, relatively well known. They did video games and stuff too. And uh, yeah, I mean, we were were kind of a hot spot. We were about five minutes from a mall that had a Games Workshop flagship store. Yeah. and all their players to us because we had table space. So everyone would play at our store, get introduced to the game at the Grapevine Mills Mall. And then Reaper Miniatures was a 30-minute drive from us in Denton. So the Reaper pro painters would always come on the weekends and teach everybody how to paint. And um, So we had a really cool dynamic in the location. And it just unfortunately, the new company didn't uh, jive as well with the tabletop community. They were ma- way more into, well, tabletop minis, I would say. They were way more into magic and video games. Mm-hmm. And- this wasn't the same clientele. So I think they just, they lost a lot of customer base that way unknowingly. Uh, and then when I went to West Texas, I just kind of started back over with Games Workshop again. And cause I knew it the best, uh, knew their, their sales strategies and everything at the time and got into board games and, and card games and everything again. So the first license that you rescued, how did that conversation go? And at that time, you've never, you hadn't done anything like this before. Right. So right. there's a certain level of um, risk. Right. So, I mean, that's a huge leap. Right. So what led you to say, you know what, I'm going to take this leap. I'm fairly confident I can make it work. Don't know much about licensing. This is kind of my first one. And so how did, how did you kind of figure that out? It was uh, about six weeks of, uh, of completely thinking I'm not going to do it and then I'm going to do it and I'm not going to do it and yeah. do it. Um, I was really involved with the UFS card game as a player and a store. And we were running our own pro tour, like tournaments and, and things like that in the West Texas area. I was, yeah. I was really an advocate for the community and trying to grow that area, with the, which isn't a very high population for compared to most places in the U.S. So we were getting really good results. And when they decided to cancel, I was on the forums talking to the players. I'm like, well, what if we do this? What if we do this? You know, can we still keep the game going this way or this way or this way? And it ended up just me me having to directly talk to Steve who started the game under Sabretooth games, which was a subsidiary of games workshop. So you'll see yeah. our background has a lot to do with games workshop as a whole. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, he didn't really want to let it go. I don't think, but it's just, it wasn't doing as well under fantasy flight and they didn't really have the infrastructure for CCG organized play. And that was the, the really the kicker that really, I think killed all those CCGs at the time. Yeah. Um, it was just, being a board game company, not knowing how different CCGs are. Um, so we, after six weeks, I think most of that time I was really thinking, I'm not going to do it. It's a huge risk. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I finally woke up one day and I was like, I will regret this the rest of my life if I just don't do it. And I'm young enough to take the risk and go bankrupt and see what happens yeah. <laughs> at the time. I think I was 23, 24. I don't remember. Yeah. And uh, I'm 35 now. So it's been a while. Um, yeah. <laughs> And uh, yeah, just we, like I said, we took out student loans. So I took out two student loans to pay for everything because I was, I was like right at graduating about a month into graduating. Yeah. So I had really low interest. <laughs> I used that for the business. I don't know if you're supposed to do that. I think it's safe enough to talk about now. Sure. 15 years later, but, <laughs> but we paid off our loans, obviously bought the game, bought all their existing inventory. And I just kind of took a leap of faith. 
When did you know that you, that that, that risk had paid out? Like how long was it before you're like, okay. Man, we're, it was, it good. was very rough starting because uh, yeah. we had to, we had to figure everything out for manufacturing. Um, I, we did our first products in China. There were some print errors and things that we had to take yeah. care of. And it's a steep uh, learning curve, right? Like, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it was a crazy learning curve, especially CCGs because they're so complicated. They're so um, detailed to make, especially like foil cards and stuff. So our first sets didn't have foil cards, the first two, yeah, because uh, it was just too hard to do and too expensive. And if anything went wrong, it would have bankrupt us. So we had to like heavily secure shipments uh with shipping insurance they had to have like secure everything because it was all just me out of pocket yeah. um and i'm i didn't come from massive wealth it was like game store money right like game stores can make a living but it's not the same as publishing sure and the costs and the shipping costs and then customer service and distribution and all that stuff so i was lucky to have been working with distributors for so long as a store so i was able to kind of get those, those relationships going, get it out in there, talk to companies like Cool Stuff Inc. at the time who really supported us and stocked the cards and helped us get off the ground. Um, but it, man, there was a lot of struggles. Uh, the first, I think three or four years, the biggest thing was like an actual like natural disaster plague. Anything that had to do with water was super bad luck for us. Our very first shipment got hit by a blizzard in Texas, like oh never happens. Yeah. Um, I was hauling a pallet of cards because uh, it was all late because of weather. So I drove from West Texas to Dallas five hours as soon as it landed because they weren't going to get it to us. And then yeah. I picked up the, uh, one of the pallets of cards, put it in my truck and drove back through a blizzard that just happened out of nowhere on the way back. Um, we spun out. The car died in the middle of the highway sideways and was about to get hit by a semi. We had to like push it out of the way <laughs> with a pallet of cards in the back. Then uh, at one of our tournaments, like about a year later, we had another second, the second release of our card game. Our hotel room had all of our orders for our retailers there because we were running the tournament, had to ship at the same time. It was, and it was in Las Vegas before we lived here. And our hotel room got flooded. All that cardboard on the floor that was ready to pack out in our hotel rooms all got flooded because one of the neighbors like left their tub on overnight or something. It oh, flooded God. all the floors and ruined like $15,000 product. Um, like just water kept being an issue. So, <laughs> so when we moved to Vegas, I guess the dry is like, this is our luck. So everything kind of went better <laughs> ever since 2014. you like a lot smoother. More of a cardboard friendly climate, I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, but no, the, the learning curve for publishing is already steep and CCGs, I, I do not think I would recommend that being your very first game product that you try to make because it is sure. way harder. It's way harder to do. So you made a, uh, a leap into Kickstarters, right? And started taking this kind of Kickstarter path. And for anybody watching or listening, you've been very successful, right? I think I was adding up the numbers. I think you've been ex in excess of $3 million you've done mm -hmm. uh, in uh, Kickstarter campaigns. At what point did you start jumping into the Kickstarters to say, okay, now I've kind of figured out some of the licensing. Let's, was that was a part of that initial uh, thing or was that kind of a, a next phase that, that you moved towards? It's a, it's a really interesting story. Our first Kickstarter was the Mega Man board game. It's also yeah. our first board game. Um, and it all happened because I was, I was on a, a trip um, in New York and had a dream in my hotel room about Mega Man uh, and wrote down a whole bunch of stuff on Best Western note, notepad uh, notes about this game idea I had. And then went back to sleep. We didn't have rights to Mega Man or anything at that time. And then down the road, I talked to Capcom. We were actually trying to get Street Fighter and... I think it was Street Fighter Cross Tekken Yeah. Or for the license because it's two big fighting games. It would have made sense. Didn't work out. But they're like, we could give you Darkstalkers and Mega Man. 
And so it's like kind of pure coincidence that I had a game idea that gave us the rights to Mega Man instead of what we were asking for. And uh, I think we were one of the very first licensed products ever on Kickstarter as well. So we decided to do the Mega Man board game, uh, include painted miniatures. Um, we did a lot of stuff that's like could, pretty risky actually when you think about yeah. it, but it was it was new to, I mean, Kickstarter was pretty wild west at the time in 2014. Yeah. Still pretty new. Um, and it worked out. It, it was uh, probably a loss for the first six months once it fulfilled because the shipping, we didn't realize we built shipping into our stuff. We probably lost a quarter million dollars on shipping. Wow. Was that because um, of weight or what, what was it? That... Just because shipping estimates. Uh, yeah. Like we just didn't know that every year the shipping goes up and uh, all the estimates were wrong and um, had to use a whole bunch of stuff and fulfill ourselves because at, at that point it was like too late to use any kind of fulfillment center um, yeah. for pricing. And so it eventually recouped in retail, but yeah, I mean, that was a, that was a harsh lesson. In how it was a big campaign too, right? Didn't that hit over like half a million or something that? Yeah, it was about 415 K for yeah. our first Kickstarter, uh, which is pretty good for that time. I think it was uh, the 14th highest grossing Kickstarter. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, one of the top, board games like top three or four at the time so this is a game that you guys created because this i found this kind of interesting when i was looking through your portfolio first question that came to mind was when you're securing these licenses is the licensee coming with a you know kind of a framework saying okay you can have our our property here's our licensing contract here's a royalty structure and so forth and by the way here's how this game has to kind of be structured but it sounds like in this case, you guys had an idea for a game and then said, okay, we're going to skin this mechanic or this uh, this kind of game we've created, you know, with this licensed property, in this case, Mega Man. Is that always the approach with you guys or is it is there ever any variability in there? In terms it does of vary. So typically, yeah. um, depending on if, if it's a big company that's got a licensing division and they do this all the time for shirts and stuff, yeah, um, they don't want to come to you with an idea. They yeah. say, what's the proposal? How much money are you paying us up front? What percentage royalty? Uh, there's a, It's a big term sheet, right? And you make a yeah. presentation on this is the product. This is what's different about it. It's not competing with anything in the market. That's the same brand. And this is how much money you're going to make, right? Here's a guarantee and here's our projections. Uh, that's typically how it works. Now, there are some companies that see um, what we do because uh, we do have a good reputation with licensing mm -hmm. and they bring ideas to us and they'll say hey we have this video game or movie or comic book uh we want to make a game about this this and this could you guys spearhead it for us either through our development team or an outsourced development team um, but that's i would say maybe five percent of the licensing we do it's typically we come with an idea yeah uh, we present it we present it as a full product and then we acquire the rights so you get like so originally uh they're saying lump sum up front and then we, we get our royalty along the way, which of course they want to make sure they're getting something and they're not, uh, you know, that there's going to be some risk on your side and, you know, push for you to succeed. Exactly. Is it ever get to the point where you've proven yourself with enough properties now that they, you can negotiate that out and say, look, we're not paying you anything up front, but we'll give you just a straight royalty. And here's our, here's our history to show you that we're successful bringing movie and video game properties to, to market or. I would say the only time you're going to get rid of a minimum guarantee <laughs> is if uh, your company is bigger than the company you're licensing from. <laughs> okay. Got it. <laughs> Cause then it's like, we don't need to do this. It's just more of a, it'll be fun and we'll see how what happens. 
if that, I mean, right now, I mean, we work with Disney and Fox as one company now, um, Warner Brothers, Paramount, like all the big movie companies, and then a bunch yep. of video game companies. Capcom's the main one, but Bandai as well, and uh, and then a bunch of anime companies and comic book companies. So like, with everybody combined, they're all bigger companies than us. Those are all massive multimedia yeah. companies. Um, so they kind of set the terms. <laughs> we want to do stuff with them. We love their properties, so they they get to say, yeah, pay us up front. Is and my other thought was on this um, when when you're kind of signing these licenses, um, is there always the idea of okay, here's kind of the game that's going to fit the license? Because um, in my mind, I got to think there's got to be some licenses that are just not going to translate into in, into board games, right? So is it always kind of start with okay, here's a game we think we can make with that license, mm-hmm. or is there ever a time we just say? We like that license so much. We want it bad. We'll figure it out once we kind of secure the, you know, we'll, we'll kind of do it the other, the other, the other order. That's a, that's a business development uh, decision. So yeah. when you come to a license, you, you want, definitely want to get the rights to something you can make, you're comfortable making. Yeah. Um, like we do have a bunch of rights to things that have no board games built in. Like we have the rights to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure and oh, awesome. Journey, yeah. uh, Terminator two, uh, and uh, well, and Evil Dead, and those are a lot more restricted than uh, what we usually do because we're doing like uh, graphic novels with those. Yeah. We're doing um, like interactive game books and that kind of thing, but we're not doing miniatures. We're not doing cards for some of those titles, um, and that's because we just like we can't make a, a fighting card game with Bill and Ted or Terminator Two, like maybe Terminator Two. Uh, Terminator 2 comes with a lot of caveats because we want to use Arnold if we're going to do anything and he is more expensive than Terminator 2 Yeah, for the rights just to him. Um, so there's a lot of business decisions you have to make when you're doing these things. And so we always come with, we're going to get the rights to like a card game or a board game or a miniatures game or a comic book or whatever it is, right? Uh, some, some things like for My Hero Academia, which is our biggest anime title right now, um we have a master license so it's like everything tabletop all the way from minis board games card games like everything all the way down and anybody in the industry for english has to come to jasco games to make anything for that oh it's awesome it's got to feel better to have more control too right because i think that if you're only getting a tiny piece there's a chance that some of your stuff could kind of bump up against somebody else's stuff too i guess right and that be a little awkward at we've uh, definitely seen some weird competition before um buffy the vampire slayer is one our buffy game and upper decks uh deck building game came out literally the same time Mm. it was really confusing because we both had banners at our booths at gen con for buffy (laughs) um our booth happened to have one of the actors signing and stuff and i think the game was well very well received uh thematically compared to the card game but it's like now we're directly competing on the same launch at the same convention with the same property uh, that happens. So if you can afford the master license, it's probably worth it. It just depends on what it is. If it's a AAA title, you don't want people competing with you. For sure. Can you sub-license out? So if you sign a master, can you then take one uh, part of that ma- that license and, and sub-license it out or no? It depends on how you negotiate your agreement. They don't. Okay. Most places don't like sub-licensing because it puts more liability on them. Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of My Hero Academia, we work with partners. We want, we're, We have a bunch of cool games coming up with other game companies for my hero academia that are planned but we publish them we are in charge of them we do all the approvals and we just hire out other companies as essentially a development house to develop the game rules and mechanics and layouts 
So you got a pretty cool title coming that we talked about in the intro, uh, Mortal Kombat. Uh, and the timing couldn't be better because I just saw a bunch of trailers last week of a new Mortal yep. Kombat kind of reboot coming. So how did that come about? And did you know that they're doing this kind of whole reboot thing was coming or was we, it just- We definitely knew the movie was coming up. Um, right. And we did not know that it was going to land literally when we planned to launch our Kickstarter. Yeah. <laughs> so, so April is, is our intended internal goal to launch uh, Mortal Kombat. We wanted to make sure that Street Fighter is fulfilled first because it's the same system yeah. and they will be compatible. So we have 37 Street Fighter characters that are going to be compatible with uh, however many Mortal Kombat characters we're able to unlock in this campaign. Uh, and that's going to be awesome. We're really excited for that. So the two uh, games can mix and match. So you can actually fight, use your Mortal Kombat characters to fight some of the streets. So you can yeah. kind of answer the age old question, right? Who would have won exactly. in that? Uh... And those are the two biggest fighting games. So it's like the first time uh, in, in tabletop minis history that this will ever be a thing. It's not, it's not even happened in the video game yet. So I'm really excited about it. <laughs> So Mortal Kombat of, is my all-time favorite fighting game. I have the arcade games downstairs. And oh, nice. I, I'm huge in the Mortal Kombat, so I'm, I can't wait for this one. So how do you take, like, like what's your approach when you're doing, like, a video game property like that to, or, like, thinking back to the arcade, right, where you're doing combos and different button combos to try to get that finishing move, you know, Scorpion wins. So how, how do you translate that into a tabletop game where it still has a same kind of richness and playability and doesn't feel kind of like just a cheap kind of uh, skin put on something else. Uh, for all of our licensing, we don't like to take um, like the monopoly approach, I would say, where <laughs> it's, it's, it's a theme, I guess, that's over a mechanic that has nothing to do with it. Yeah. Every single title we do is built with the mechanics in mind for the property. So if you play Buffy, it should feel like you're playing episodes of Buffy. If you play Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat, it's clearly the video game fighting games represented in a board game form. And in this case, with up to six players, some some alternate rules, 3D style interactions, but we still build in all of our combos. We have teams that literally sit there and play the games, and research all the combos, and uh, make sure that everything is true to form to the video games. Yeah. Uh, and we've been doing that from the beginning with our card game. So we're kind of used to fighting games. Fighting games was like our bread and butter for whatever it yeah. is we've done. Now three different fighting game systems. We have the UFS Universe's card game. We have Exceed with level 99. Uh, they obviously developed that, but we've done Street Fighter with them. We've done Red Horizon and we've cross uh, worked together with level 99 a bunch. And um, and then the UTS system for what Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat is on. And um, coming right before Mortal Kombat, we have a little mini Kickstarter for a new Mega Man game with four uh, miniatures that are the same scale and everything as the UTS system for Mega Man. Yeah. And that's going to be launching and you can add your UTS decks to that as an upgrade to play those four Mega Man characters in with Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. So so when does that campaign launch? So if it's a mini one, because one campaign has to finish before the next one. Right. Next yeah. One so that one is it's probably going to be next month. Um, the okay. game is in final approvals right now with Capcom. The game's been completely designed. Uh, the minis are approved. Uh, so right now it's just like the box art is being finished and yeah. some of the, the, all the components have been designed and they're just sitting with Capcom for final approval. And so then we'll do marketing and launch that thing. And it should be pretty quick and easy, easy to produce. We'd like our manufacturer for this stuff and we'll have some more awesome miniatures to show off and uh, a whole new Mega Man game that's never been seen before. Plus, it's compatible with UTS. So, oh, it's crazy. Are you are you using the same manufacturer? Like, have you found you've kind of got into like a good little rhythm now with certain 
hard houses and, and manufacturers and, you know, distribute distribution networks and things like that. Like, is that all kind of now very dependent on property or, or product and yeah. what it's made out of and what countries we're distributing to. Got so it. like at earlier in my career, I would say, yeah, we, we really like just work with one manufacturer and we tried yeah. to do that. Now I'd say we work with 30 oh, <laughs> and, wow. uh, and it depends on if it's paper or plastic, if it's going to distribute to Europe or not. Um, and, and there's a whole bunch of variants. Uh, uh, we have right now factories in China, Japan, um, Canada, Germany, uh, US. Um, and then we've dabbled with like India and uh, Thai, Taiwan. Wow. So, and where do you see this, this, this company going? Again, just going to keep just absorbing license after license? Or have you guys kind of set like a, what the next level is going to be for you guys? Yeah. So we are developing more of our own IPs now. We're working on kind of a top secret um, futuristic world at the moment. We have our Red Horizon world that we started our card game with. And then we have the Grim and Wonderland world that's uh, had a kind of a peek into where yeah. all the Brother Grim fairy tales fall in the rabbit hole and they, they fight. Essentially, we do a lot of fighting. <laughs> um, uh, but in terms of licensing, uh, the goal is to never kind of step down in our titles, try to go up uh, to yeah. more and more triple A uh, most popular, the things that everybody dreams of working with, obviously, which is also more complicated and more rules and all that kind of stuff with the licensors, but really try to stay with like your Disney's and Warner Brothers and, and top video game manufacturers, top comic book man, um, producers and publishers yeah. and bring out everyone's favorite titles as much as we can. And we'll probably just stay there, to be honest, and just make fun stuff for people. Certainly, you've proven uh, a successful uh, model in, in that arena. So uh, good for you guys. How do people follow along? So if somebody wants to, you know, be notified or, or know when the, the next Mega Man launch comes or even the Mortal Kombat, how best do they kind of get linked into that, um, that network? I would say the two best ways, uh, our Facebook is pretty informative, just Jasco Games on Facebook. Um, okay. If you follow the card game, it would be play UFS, I believe, and it's going to change into universes and okay. the my hero card game will have its own uh facebook as well and website it's uh, mha cardgame.com i think yeah and then jascogames.com has a mailing list so if you just go to jascogames.com or net it doesn't matter um you can go sign up for the mailing list and we'll keep you posted on all the upcoming crowdfunding campaigns as well uh we don't do a ton of them typically it's like one every two years or so sure but we we like to do like the big passion projects that you can't really bring to retail that way like yeah. the minis game I told you about, like that thing, if that was a, a retail item, it'd be like a $500 board game. Oh yeah. We, we had to take all the costs and just pretend like everybody was a distributor. And that was the, <laughs> that was the final cost. Right. So otherwise it's just, nobody would buy that thing. <laughs> well, I, I can imagine the amount of uh, buzz that is building around this uh, right now. And if you look at the success of your street fighter campaign is any indication, this is going to be, uh, absolutely epic. So I can't I'm wait to see how this so shakes excited. out. And oh, I know yeah. you, you, you wanted to talk about, uh, evil dead a little bit. I don't know if you have time for that, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. What's uh, going on with evil dead. Yeah. The evil dead two campaign. Um, that was one of the games we saved. So it was done by a company. I actually can't, I don't think I can legally say the name of the company. Yeah. It was done by another company and they did almost a million dollars on crowdfunding and never fulfilled their game to anybody. Uh, oh I think a lot of people have seen this on Kickstarter and yeah. other platforms where companies bite off more than they can chew. Yeah. Um, so 
level or sorry Lindvander Studios and Jasco Games came together and uh, kind of rescued that game with uh, with Studio Canal, uh, the licensor for Evil Dead 2 and Creative Licensing Group, and we were able to salvage some of the assets that were already made and okay. then a new game, new artwork, um, new mechanics, and everything, and we're able to fulfill that game for just the cost of shipping to all of the previous backers uh, by running a new campaign. So what we did, we called it a heartthrob campaign. So anybody that wasn't a previous backer could come buy the game and the proceeds would go to buy, to pay for everybody's game that, that got screwed. So we barely wow. hit our funding goal and then delivered, I think it was 8,000 games to backers that never got their game from the original company. Wow. That is an incredible story. I mean, just to be able to, you always hear the horror stories, right? Of uh, these Kickstarter <laughs> campaigns where people are like, oh, I, you know, my money's gone. I, I never got my whatever it is I backed, whether it be board game or anything else. And you see this in electronics and so forth and different innovations. And, you know, I think that's pretty cool, you know, to step up and say, the only way we're going to take over the property, because uh, you could have easily just ran a new campaign and say, well, that was those other guys. That wasn't us, right? Mm -hmm. But the fact that you're able to do that, I'm sure that has really brought a lot of loyalty. Uh, to your company, right? And I'm sure your fan base. I, um, I will say there's still yeah. probably about 20, 25% of the original backers that don't know that it's us or them or whatever. And we still get hate mail and that kind of thing. <laughs> They're like, we don't want anything to do with you. And I'm like, well, that's not us. <laughs> we were trying to give you a free thing. Yeah. That had nothing to do with us. But we understand like people aren't going to read everything. And, and with if you're really, really mad, you definitely don't want to read more stuff about the same. Oh, thing. no, you're just you're just seeing. <laughs> so oh, it's crazy. So once again, so people can find you at uh, jascogames.net or .com. From there, they can uh, get added to the mailing list, which mm -hmm. then they can be notified of when each of these games come out, the Kickstarter campaign start, as well as any new news or offers. I'm sure you exactly. guys uh, inform people yep. on that. Uh, and then on your Facebook page, there's another great way for them to kind of link in and follow along. Yeah. And then every Friday, for the most part, we have a show called The Joffice. Okay. It's office Live. It's the Jasco office. Yeah. And we talk about everything internally that day, every Friday. Uh, I think it's usually about two o'clock Pacific. And uh, we'll go over a lot of, we're very, very transparent company. We go over pretty much everything that's happening in development and what's coming out. If there's a, a cool thing or a delay or anything, you just know about it and we'll talk about it live and you can chat with us there. Oh, that's awesome. We'll have to check it out. Jason, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. And I wish you all the best this upcoming year with these campaigns. Thank you so much. Thanks again for having me. You take care. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time. We'll